Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. We are very privileged to have a special guest with us today, Mr. Timothy Bentz. And if you're not familiar with Tim Bentz, this was the man that God used in 2008 to judge the banking system. He was led by God to discover an ancient Canaanite altar right under Rockefeller's house on Jekyll Island, Georgia. And he has just an incredible testimony of how God has led him to do mighty works in his name. But the secret of that is just how Tim has yielded his heart to God in order to have the kind of relationship with God that allows him to have authority in these areas of the world on a larger stage. So we know that you're going to be blessed and edified by uh, this episode. It is a bit on the longer side, but we trust that it will really bless you just being mentored and edified by the things that Tim has to share with us. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. How are you? How are you, sir? (laughs) Good. I've got my phone on its side. I don't know how I look. <laughs> we're we're not doing we're we're not doing a recording of the the video. So uh, honestly, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it doesn't we're matter. Recording the audio only. <laughs> this is a YouTube. Uh, so it's just going to be audio on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, audio only. Yep, yep, exactly. Well, thanks for doing this, Tim. I'm I'm Pete, and this is my brother Luke. Luke. Nice to meet you. Guys. And you are in Oklahoma. I am. Yeah, and you lived there your whole life. Uh, most of it, I've I've lived. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, but okay, I grew up here, and I moved away for a short period and traveled around the world, and then came back. So. Yeah. Well, we very we, good. Uh, go ahead, Luke. Go ahead. 
Well, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, uh, Luke and I grew up in Wisconsin, and uh, he's a Southern boy now. He lives in Louisiana. So, oh, that's, yep, that's Creole. That's not Southern. Well, okay, you got it. You got it. You you know better than I, Tim. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, that's true. They're all we're all immigrants. We're all mutts to a degree. I, I feel like I've got a great appreciation for the native nations, so I feel like I moved right into the middle of a bunch of nations. So that's awesome. I'm surrounded by thirty nine well. different ones, plus the U.S. So <laughs> good spot. Well, uh. uh, uh I wanted to ask you um, really quick, even before we get started, uh, are you familiar with Dr. Laura Sanger, her ministry or her work at all? Just by She's name, don't, don't really know her. Um, okay. Her name's coming. Well, uh, yeah, we've. I came across several of her interviews and ended up purchasing her, her book, and she's got a book. I'd have to pull up the exact title, but basically it was Tracing the Nephilim um, to the current Federal Reserve and Jekyll Island. And yeah. so your interview with Rob Skiva, which we ended up listening and um, was uh, impacted by in your testimony and that whole experience, the Lord okay. used that interview with Rob Skiva to lead her to research and, and publish a, a book. Well, that's, and, that's, um, how, that's how I know her. I, I, she knows a lot of the same okay. people in the Israel area. I, okay. That sort of started out with a suggestion that I had with a, a rabbi while I was over in Israel. Uh, he used to work for the department in Israel that determined if you got uh, a legitimate enough Jewish bloodline to have Aliyah or not. And uh, we did some research together looking backwards at the book of Nehemiah. I was trying to figure out if there was any correlation with um, Tobias, uh, Gershwin, and Sandballot, and um, trying to figure out why why those three guys got away with rebelling against the king of Babylon because they didn't obey the letter that Nehemiah brought. <clears throat> and he discovered that it looked like uh, Tobias and Sandballot were the bankers for Babylon. And... That explains a lot in history if that's validatable, because that that would be why Babylon, you know, that Babylonian king during Nehemiah's reign was considered one of the most ruthless kings in the world. If if he even had the hint of rebellion, he'd kill you and everybody that was related to you. So for his bankers wow. to well, it was a little different story. He he had to navigate around that because he was at war with everybody. But when I looked at them, then I sort of threw that out there. Like, wow, I said if there was if there's some validation on that, then let's look at their bloodlines. Because I said I got a, a I got a hunch that I feel like it's from the Holy Spirit that it's very possible that the same problem was occurring in Jesus's day that was happening in Nehemiah. So, and he did validate some of the bloodlines coming forward that that Tobias had um, was living on top of the storehouse. And that he had some compromising in that the issue that Nehemiah had to deal with twice where the um, the bloodlines were tainted and, and they had to repent for taking in foreign wives. And that's that may be a, tris, tris, a mistranslation because it doesn't necessarily mean 
that your foreign wife is all bad because in scripture God grafts women in a few times like like Ruth and and uh, Esther uh, Rahab is grafted into his own family tree so it it actually probably is a better translation to say God was telling them to not be entangled with foreign covenants but they had to be very careful when they came into a covenant with someone else and of course a marriage is a covenant so that would explain why that's a possible issue um, but we discovered that there was a, a direct bloodline between Sam Ballot, Gershwin, and Tobias, and the high priest Eliashib and Caiaphas. You know, and oh, wow. So then I, I saw through that out there that I said, well, if, if that's true, then it might be a little scary and might want to keep the research quiet, but it'd be worth looking at to see who they're related to today. And uh, Okay, so yeah, you guys somehow that's still over on her, and she, she picked that research up and did a you know, I haven't read the whole book, but I understand she did a pretty thorough job of researching that. So, yeah, yeah, we've well we use that as a ref uh, a reference book, honestly, um, in a lot of ways. And uh, I think she's working on another book. Uh, I'm not sure that's subject matter, but uh, well, yeah, that's. You know, yeah, I, I look at it as um, I think that the the premise that I've learned is that we, there is nothing new under the sun. That the things that we're dealing with in our day. They're they're packaged differently because of our language and because of the location of the earth we live in. But it's the same problems that God's dealt with in the scriptures in past generations. And so that said, you got to sort of figure out what did God say about this problem in somewhere back there and what scriptures does he apply? What prophetic words came out in that time? Those are probably still relevant for us to to see where we line up with them, you know, and. But also, how does God deal with it is, uh, you know, evidential. I'm I'm looking at about 2,800 prophetic words in Scripture, <clears throat> and trying to correlate them into what what do they sound like today, where they're landing, um, and it's it's quite an exhaustive um, thing to try to attempt to do. But I've I've got some enough evidence to say that the judgments of God are still pertinent for today. They're still coming down from heaven, just like they did in the days of old. They just look different because we're getting a, a very heavy mercy response every time. God is always, um, you know, doing, he's shaking the nations, but he's doing everything to get us to, to deal with it first and get his body involved in dealing with it. And for the most part, a lot of this stuff we're subject to because we're just not engaging in it properly. We're trying to do spiritual warfare, but we're not engaging in it with the with the presence of God and with the fellowship with God. And so it, it's it's interesting just looking at the financial kingdom that the the first thing is you can't say that those guys are rascals that need to come down and the whole Federal Reserve System is, is iniquitous. You, you can't say that without saying, well, my heart must be subject to that, and I voluntarily became a party to that, so what does God require me to repent from first? You know? And so my, if I've got an aversion to being in debt and I like it, and I think that that's fine, then I've submitted to slavery, and God may not be as heavy to deliver me as what he normally would be. You know, And so the, the entire population of the United States is slaves, that we are all slaves right now. You know, we volunteered for it. It's not the way our country was founded, though. You know, we were founded on freedom, and somewhere along the way, the birth of the the birth of the Federal Reserve, God holds our Congress responsible for, not the Federal Reserve bankers. Yeah, they did something wrong. Yes, they they did something on purpose to put us into debt, but Congress voted for it. Yeah, 
Yeah. Therefore, every citizen voluntarily submitted to the change. You know? And that's a different problem when God decides to judge that. So he has to shake it out of us first. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting um, you, you bring up about God's judgments uh, repeating today, maybe manifesting a little differently. Are you familiar with uh, some of Jonathan Kahn's books, you know, like The Harbinger? I, I was just fascinated by those connections from Isaiah 9, 10, I think it is, to... Isaiah 9-11, he definitely hit exactly right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I do. I like his work. I think he's extraordinarily thorough with the, he understands the Jewish customs and ways. So he, he really makes a good argument when he picks up the, the prophetic side of that. And I, I think he has a prophetic anointing himself. So I think he's, he's pretty amazing to listen to. Um, I, I did not publish anything, but the year before the 9-11 happened, I had some, we were tracking this with a few friends of mine and uh, not, not, we were tracking how prophecy looks today when a judgment is being fulfilled. And I was completely on the other side of the page of that. I was looking at weather and, and you know, major catastrophes as potential for judgments so floods, famines, um, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes. Um, I made a case that a, a May 3rd tornado that happened in Oklahoma and did some massive devastation was actually a judgment. Hmm. And I nearly got tarred and feathered by most of the local ministries in town. Um, but I stood my ground because I was looking at real data saying, look, God said this, this is what happens somewhere in history. Now, if we're dealing with the same iniquity, then God may deal with us the same way. Okay. And I uh, said, so I just can't make the case that a tornado has a mind of its own or that uh, destructive weather is just a natural phenomena that we can't do anything about. I know too many people that pray against a storm and have seen it change or move or dissipate. And so I, I went to I went to my, my king and just said, you know, do I have a right to pray against this tornado that you told me was coming, you know, and I, I had a prophetic word that a, a major tornado was going to devastate the city of Moore. And um, so my parents had a house there. So of course I went, well, you know, I'll, I'll just pray this one off, you know? And uh, I, I said, Jesus, I, I really want to protect my family's house. And the Lord gave me a very cryptic answer at first. He said, the safest place to be in my perfect will is where I told you to be, even if you end up in the midst of rubble, you know. And uh, so he said, if you try to flee the rubble uh, or the the coming of the rubble and get out of my will, you will be in as much danger or more danger as you would be if you stay put and under the shadow of the Almighty. And so I said, well, are you telling me not to pray like I want to pray? And the second answer was, just because you can doesn't mean you should. You know, so I began to reevaluate my spiritual authority and say, you know, just because I can tell the storm to go doesn't mean God wants it to. And uh, so I, I shared that with a few friends. We talked about the idea of hearing God clearly, and especially in a crisis, that's even a little bit harder for a lot of people. And so I, that was one of my lessons is I, I, I watched that storm hit my father's house while I was in prayer with my mother and others, and uh, my father was in the tornado. And yet when we, when I looked at the devastation later, 
I realized the, the rubble looked really bad and our typical response is just to rush in and try to save lives and then rebuild as quickly as possible. But once there was rubble for 44 square miles in my city and there were 44 people dead, I looked at it and I said, Jesus, if this was a judgment, what are you judging? You know? And I'm not saying it's a judgment. I don't want to go out in public and say that. But, but if this is a judgment, if, you, if it was your finger steering this, then what are you judging? And the Lord said to me, I'm judging the same thing that I always do. I'm judging iniquity that's hidden and not repented for. And um, so he said, look at the rubble, wherever you see rubble is where is where I'm uncovering something that I want my people to deal with. You know? And it's not always this is the problem that I really have with this is it's not always the, the fault of the person who's living on the rubble when it's reduced to that. You may be innocent and just moved on to an iniquity spot. You know? <clears throat> so you may not actually be guilty of the thing that God's concerned about. You may be living righteously, but you didn't listen to him when you when when you bought that house. You know? And um, or oh, it's the opposite. He might have put you there on purpose because he wanted you to stand in the gap and pray for true repentance to come to the whole city. You know, and so I began looking at that. That was certainly the kind of prayers my my father prayed. So um, I realized, well, Dad, God spared my father's life. He did not spare his house. You know. And when we when we questioned the Lord about that, he said, I give my people the responsibility to bring justice and equity to their city. You know, if you don't do that, you're subject to my judgments. You know? And uh, so the, the, the iniquity we uncovered in the city was child molestation, was never got justice in the courts. You know? Interesting. And, uh, it went back a long way. So we actually found out that there was a pattern of tornadoes that hit certain communities in the South. We became nicknamed Tornado Alley and everybody just in weather, in weather circles, they just think we're living in the wrong spot. But when I started studying patterns of iniquity, I realized, no, the, the iniquity is hitting repeatedly with great mercy responses from God in places where we're not dealing with the iniquity. So then you go to hurricanes and uh, you know that kind of stuff. It's it's the same thing. But I, then I began to look at every judgment in Scripture, uh, especially things that destroyed nations or, or or cost people their lives. And I realized, well, we're under the blood. We're under the we're in the, a new covenant now. So there must be a change in that. And there is not, with the exception that God has added much more mercy to it. So we we still end up in a repeat of the ills of history until we deal with it. But God doesn't necessarily, you know, devastate the whole nation or, or take out hundreds of thousands of lives. He's very, very merciful in dealing with us. And so he, he taps us on the head and says, please repent. You know, yeah. <laughs> and he, he shakes the nation a little bit and says, please repent. And he's always standing there saying, if my people will just humble themselves and pray, I, I'll show you how to fix this. You know, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, this term that I think Dr. Laura got from George Otis Jr., spiritual mapping. And it's the idea of, uh, yeah, iniquities that have defiled the land. And I, I thought it's very similar to your gatekeeping principle that you talked about. And and I guess I'll bring it up now. One idea I had uh, for Dr. Laura, I, I sent her a message. I said, 
just thinking of a a, a vision of getting uh, Tim and yourself together with Luke and I and seeing what correlations um, those two things have because yeah wow there's there's so much there I, I'd be open to that I think she, I, I would hope that she would yeah she I'd is be... yeah she she's kind of booked up the first half of this year so we're thinking uh, second half of this year we could try to do that that would be wonderful well, you know, here's why I, I met Joe, George Otis Jr. back in 1990. Mm. Um, I, I like him. I think he's pretty thorough. as uh, a f- filmmaker guy. Uh, I love that combination of he's talented at filmmaking. Also, is you know, really loves God. And but I also met a bunch of the people from his Transformations video, the the first one, and they actually debuted that first one in Oklahoma City because at that time he believed that Oklahoma City was closer to a breakthrough with transformation than any other city that was in the United States. And and I think we were. We we had a prayer movement going here that was pretty astounding and God was moving uh like a freight train with a lot of things. And but when I looked at the whole premise of of his book uh, and his video uh, first of all, I believe in transformation. Absolutely. I believe that in citywide repentance transforms a lot of times, not just the city, but possibly the whole world. God just needs a remnant to listen to him and pray accordingly. But that said, I found that his video actually, uh, and I don't mean this to, to be negative towards him at all. I'm not, I'm not negative towards him personally, but but uh, the hardest thing to do with a video is try to say a you know forty hours worth of content in thirty minutes, and so everybody that does media knows that problem. And I, I've been in the the media business in the past, so I know the difficulty of editing is extraordinarily hard. And trying, especially when you go out and catch a lot of raw footage, and it's all phenomenal. So then you think, what do I what do I cut out? Um, so he didn't do it intentionally, but in the editing of his Transformations 1 video, you the every pastor I knew in America was left with this idea, let's run out and get the arena, biggest arena we can find, call, call a, 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 you know, a, a solemn assembly, and we'll have Transformations next week. And yet on the actual testimonies in the field from the people that he had gone out and interviewed and the places he had gone, it was a two or three year or longer ordeal of standing in the gap, dealing with adversity, repenting for things every day, and sometimes more than one, a life was required before the actual repentance began to spread. And so renting an arena is the typical pastor, um, American pastor, Western church response. And God loves it because he loves it when we get together to pray, but he doesn't transform the whole city that way. And uh, so when I look at it, it's like, well, if we would repent and and we would actually deal with the issues, God would honor that. We would end up with the arenas because they'd give them to us. That's what happens in a real revival. But when you go out and rent one for a day, if you don't get the breakthrough, you just got a big bill. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. True. Yeah, you you look at the college uh, Asbury there in Tennessee area. Um, I believe that was a real move of God. I mean, you're right because it started so humbly, and then they couldn't contain it, and to the to the point where the 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 citizens of the the town, that small town, were like, "Where are all these foreigners coming?" Yeah, there was more people showing up. 
for they the didn't, they didn't want to embrace it. They had police. They had. I heard they had police at the edge of the city, often turning people away because they were at capacity. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I the, the problem that we have with this is that everybody wants a revival, but they want it in their sanctuary. And right. um, you know, in my city, I I got I got rebuked by the Lord very strongly for praying that way. And it sounds odd. I, I don't want to say that and then not explain it, but it's like I was part of a prayer movement that was extraordinary. You know, we, we were really hitting some things that God was saying he wanted to, to deal with. And we were especially trying our best to embrace some of the issues that a lot of the native tribes had gone through. And so we, we began looking at the land. You know, this was before I met George Otis. We were looking at, well, is there iniquity on our land? Well, there is innocent bloodshed. There's some real graft in our history. There's some broken right. covenants, I'm sure. We couldn't find a tribe that didn't have a broken covenant. You know, so we began looking at those issues, going, this a broken covenant almost always gets a judgment response from God. You know. So I began looking at that going, Oklahoma really has a very unique spot in the country because we've got the remnants of the native nations, but we also still have the broken covenants that have not been repented for. And so uh, that was the, the idea of spiritual mapping sort of was birthed out of that. It, it really resonated. It took off kind of like a rocket among people all over the country that started doing prayer journeys and actual historical um, things. And, and I, I don't, I don't know that the term is perfect to say spiritual mapping. I still feel like I do it today even though the term might not be correct, the activity of, of yielding to the Lord's will and his direction to find out in your span of influence, what is the iniquity that had taken place? Because you right. talked about the, the Native Americans and stuff. And, you know, I've lived down near New Orleans, you know, so there's a lot of history with the slavery and different things. So it's really, it, it comes down to, being led by the Lord, right? You know, exactly. on, on how he's leading you to pray and how to search out these iniquity things in the past that you can deal with in the present so you can get healing. Well, part of the, part of the problem is if we don't understand God's ways, then we'll do spiritual mapping for our own ministry's benefit. And by that, I mean that I'm looking for something important that I think God wants to deal with, but I'm going to apply it in a way that grows my ministry. You know? mm. That's not the same thing as saying I'm bringing justice for my city. You know? Okay. And so what happens is you'll get deep into it. You'll, you'll uncover something that God really does want to deal with because you're praying and you're listening and you're hearing, and he's going to talk to anybody, that, any of his friends that want to listen to him. And so when he starts saying, you need to look at this, you need to look at that, it, it starts emerging from the, uh, you know, the rubble of history and something stands out and God gets your attention. But then instead of you getting an actual transformational change, you then will have to deal with the same issue in your heart. Yeah. Kind so of like what you're saying with the Federal Reserve, where you got to right. ask the Lord to judge you as a person, as an exactly. individual, as a, as a man, a husband, a your own financial responsibility. Okay, Lord, where have I personally fallen short? Right. Let's deal with the, the, the log in my eye first before I judge somebody else. 
Yeah, and what, what happens on a ministry scale is a ministry might pick up that cause and say, hey, we're going to pray this out. Let's call all the intercessors together. Truth is, most of the time, the intercessors have been praying about it 20 years ahead of time, and we weren't listening to them because they're not always relegated to a leadership position. Um, most intercessors in America have been told to pray what their church's agenda is instead of pray what God's agenda is. And those two aren't always in opposition to each other. Uh, hopefully our church's agenda is what God wants to do, but not always. So if I don't discern that God is actually wanting to deal with the cause in my city, and I'm dealing with something else that I think is going to grow my ministry, I, I'm out of sync with what God wants to do in the land. You know, And so God has been working very different, very and I wouldn't say difficult, but God, to God, this is an easy problem to fix. To us, it's a difficult problem because we don't always hear. And then when we do hear, we don't always obey. And then sometimes we want to obey, but it's too big a problem. We don't know how to respond. So <clears throat> I look at it. Once we get voice to it, we start saying, hey, I think there's a problem here. Here's what I'm hearing from God. And other people say, well, let's take that up and pray together about it. God steps in and really tries to help us with that. I mean, we'll, we'll get movement and presence and power will begin to manifest to say, you're on the right track. Come on, help, help me out. And Jesus, as an intercessor, is standing in the gap already praying for what we need to deal with. He's waiting for somebody to bow their knee and come into agreement with him. You know? So once we step into that spot, we come into agreement, we go to court first. You know? So this is what's meant by judge not lest you be judged. Actually, the right interpretation of, of that should be when you judge, understand that you must submit to the judgment first. So we are we are supposed to judge. We're going to end up judging angels one day. If we don't learn how to do it, we're going to be in trouble at some point. You know. But I'm not supposed to judge falsely. I'm not supposed to judge by what I hear or by the outer appearance. I'm supposed to judge righteously. So I've got to understand God's ways and his heart, and it's really difficult when the, the more I've seen the the actual iniquity itself, where God says, this is what is breaking my heart, and I see his tears running down his face. You know? At that point, I realize 99% of the time, I'm guilty. <laughs> you know? I'm like, Jesus, I didn't even see that in myself, but I've not dealt with that issue in myself, and sometimes I've not done it. I'm not guilty of the actual sin, but the evidence of it is still in my heart. I've just never let him have that part of my heart. Interesting. And that's not the same as repenting for a sin I've already done. It's a level of repentance that's saying, I don't have your heart. And if I don't have your heart, I can't take up this cause. So I've got to do something to change my heart first. And if I am guilty of this sin, then I've got to be the first to repent. And so what for me, what transformed me was I went on a Trail of Tears journey in 1990. And uh, I actually had done this in my childhood a few times, but I didn't understand it. Even as a, a very young child, God was leading me to pray sometimes things that I didn't that were, were way beyond my years. But because I didn't understand his ways, I was just praying what he was praying. And I didn't realize how important some of them were. But in 1990, he asked me to retrace the Trail of Tears. And so the, the first leg of that journey, we only went from Fort Smith, Arkansas to Tahlequah. And when I say we, there was a, my, 
one of my partners and some other friends jumped in. Uh, we all felt led to do it as an act of repentance for Oklahoma. And God only had us deal with where we lived, you know, how this iniquity was affecting where we live. So Tahlequah is the center of the headquarters for the Cherokee Nation today. And Fort Smith, Arkansas was in the original Trail of Terrors in 1834, eight different groups of people came from Georgia, Alabama area, mostly Georgia, and they ended up in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And then they journeyed from there as a tribe into Oklahoma and caused a civil war because we had Cherokee that were already here that were governing themselves under a different treaty and we broke the treaty with the Cherokee that were in the east, mostly North Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama area. Tennessee, all of Tennessee was Cherokee. And um, when we broke that covenant in, in the Indian Removal Act, um, the, the Cherokee were probably the most successful, prominent, prospering tribe in the east at the time. Um, and we still called them savages and took things away from them. But the, the, the problem wasn't just the broken treaty, it was the wisdom and the, the um, hardship that was put on them with the intent to wipe them out and cause a genocide of the people group. And um, from Tahlequah, Tahlequah is a nice little town in Oklahoma. But I'd never really seen that as the headquarters of a nation. Suddenly, I realized God's dealing with this people like a nation, you know. And he's not dealing with them as a people group. He's actually treating them and talking to them. All of his language when he's speaking to me about them is they're a nation that he's supposed to be the principal chiefo. chiefo you know? And looking at them as a nation is different than looking at them as a, a language or a people group, you know. And so I, uh, anyway, I took up that cause. I, I told the Lord I didn't think I was physically ready for that. I, I wasn't sure that I knew how to pray for that. I, it was issues that I didn't feel like I was guilty of. And I, I simply said to the Lord, am I guilty of breaking a treaty or breaking a covenant with anyone that is representative of that nation? And my, my first answer was, no, you're not. My second question was, well, then why are you asking me to walk on land? You know, I don't mind doing it. I'm always going to say yes to you because you're my king. But why are you asking me? You know, isn't someone else more qualified to do this? And the Lord's answer was obscure at the moment. Now I understand it. He said, it's because you already have my heart. Yeah. Mm. So, so in that sense... So in that sense, you can uh, repent on behalf of others. That's that's one question that I that I've wanted to ask Dr. Laura is you know she's gone into these areas you know a school or something has demonic issues and they're able to to cleanse it to break it. So you're saying when you have God's heart for it, not necessarily you're the one that that was the cause of the sin. Yeah, we generally term that identificational repentance or representative repentance where I'm I'm asked by the king of kings to stand in the gap for something that I'm not personally subject or guilty to, you know. And but this is the Nehemiah prayer. Nehemiah probably had that 
you know, you, I, I could make a good case that Nehemiah was asked to do that, that he personally was not guilty for the things that he prayed. But every time he prayed, he didn't come to the rest of the nation and say, you filthy, dirty sinners, you need to repent. He came He came to the Lord always, I and my people and my fathers are, are guilty of this. He, he included himself in a first-person way because he was carrying the DNA of broken covenant. So what, I guess the, what, the way I'm um, picturing it as a representative of Christ here is it's as Christ is formed in us more and more and more, and we're yielding because that was, we're, we're, we're pattering what he did because he was obedient in life unto death, right? As, as the, exactly. in, as the chief intercessor. And, exactly. and so if, we're in his will and we're growing and, and people are seeing Christ in us and not Luke anymore. We're going to manifest more and more of what you're describing of interceding um, for all people past and present in our, in, in our, wherever we happen to be living. Well, that's exactly right because he, he, in order to have the the spot that he has today, as the name above every name, the King of Kings, all power and authority has been handed to him. In order to have that place, you've got to ask a simple question. Was, did he have that place before, or was he given even more than he had before? You know, he was the son. He was birthed out of the glory in some ways and had never left the glory. But he had to give up his throne his glory, his stature, uh, his preeminence, his power, his authority. He gave all that up so he can become a baby. Right. And then he had to grow into the ways of God by walking it out without sin and becoming more and more like his father by just manifesting on the earth the same way we all do, you know. That he that he he couldn't identify with humankind or with his creation of Adam unless he became one, you know. So he made himself subject to the same things that we were. He could have sinned exactly like we had, and yet he's found without sin. But as a man, if you looked at him while he was alive, especially before his three years or three and a half years of, of public ministry, would you have known that he was the Son of Man? You, you would have met you would have met someone that would have seemed like a normal human being, you know. Except when you began to converse with him, you probably would discover quickly that he had an extraordinary heart, and that he had a manner about him that was kind and loving and and walking in the fruits of the spirit. But did he learn those? You know, I don't think he was born with an automatic fruit of the spirit at full measure. I think he grew up and learned them the same way we're supposed to. And so he made every time he had a choice yeah. to go deeper with his father, he said yes to that. So by the time he's in public ministry, he has become the son of man. He has taken on the heart of God to such a level that now he can walk out every sin and every iniquity that has been done on the earth all the way to the cross and then submit to the power of resurrection to, to, final, to finally seal it. You know? That's, that's wild. I never looked at it like that, that Christ pattering 
he's our example. So for 30 years of his sinless life, he's learning to be intimate with his father and, and to, to grow and, and to represent him well here on earth. Yeah. And that's what we're called to do is to right. live that life and learn. So he learned that pattern for 30 years. Then he's anointed, he's baptized and anointed and filled with the Holy Ghost. Now he's, so it's like his first 30 years was all in preparation foundation to his ministry. Mm -hmm. And could you maybe expound maybe some examples in your life um, of, of walking with the Lord? Was there cer certain spiritual disciplines that the Lord did that you've done that has that has been a, a benefit to your growth and your intimacy and your ability to hear and, and be directed by the Lord? Um, and, and yeah, I, uh, that's a great question. I, I, thanks for asking it because it's one of my favorite topics, but um, I, I don't like to just talk about me all the time, but I do know that my, my journey with God has been 90% him and 10% me. Um, I think that that's potentially possible for all of us, but it's the same thing that I just said. It's, it's by that. I mean that all along the way, it's never saying no to God. You know, um, everything he wants, he has to have, you know, he won't demand it. He'll ask for it, you know, but if I learn to say yes to him in my childhood, then he he gains more and more of my heart with every decision that I make, even if it seems trivial and insignificant to global affairs. You know? But eventually, he's got enough of my heart that he says, hey, you've proven to yourself that you know me and, you, and you've proven to me that you're trustworthy. So now let me tell you a few secrets. This is what's burdening me. Yeah. And he starts treating you as a friend instead of just an intercessor or fivefold leader, you know. And friendship with God is so much more valuable to me than anything else that I've ever gained, you know, because I didn't initiate it. You know, he did. You know? And he didn't initiate it just because he liked me at the beginning. He initiated it because over and over and over I said yes to him. And I was found somewhere along the way to be trustworthy. You know, I, I don't know how or what I did that made him decide that he could trust me. You know, um, but it started out at a very tender age. I had one advantage in that because uh, he actually said to me one time when I was uh, in my teens that. Um, <laughs> I had a very close friend that backslid. He was a dynamic, amazing, wonderful, just incredibly gifted guy. And he and I were prayer partners. And then he decided to go off the deep end and he sort of backslid for a while. And I was so grieved because I wanted him. I wanted my friend back, you know, and, uh, I didn't know where he'd gone. He had left the city, had gone somewhere. He didn't tell everybody where he'd moved to. So he just dropped off the map. I couldn't find him. And I, I began praying for him continuously. I said, Jesus, I, I want my friend back. And, and uh, instead of getting a direct answer of the Lord, Jesus said, you know, I'm in need of a, some more friends too. 
It's like, I don't have enough friends. I've got a lot of people that claim to know me and serve me, but I don't have enough friends. And, and um, suddenly I realized Jesus was talking about something different than what I was. I was trying to get an answer for the guy that I cared about. And he was talking very, very broadly uh, on a, you know, I'm looking for friends in the earth and I can't find very many. Yeah. So I, I simply responded to that. I changed my prayer. Instead of praying for my friend that was lost, I said, Jesus, am I your friend? Yeah. I, most people that knew me at that time would claim that I was extraordinarily gifted and a skillful leader in the body of Christ. I, I wouldn't have made that claim at that time, but uh, but other people said things like that. And I didn't know where I actually stood in friendship, though. You know, I said, Jesus, am I qualified to be your friend? You know, And he sort of gave me a very quick understanding answer. He said, I mean, by, he answered me in a way I could understand. He didn't go very deep. But he said, um, he said, I want you to be my friend. And you're qualified to be my friend. But you don't know how to stay, sit in the gap you know, or stand in the gap or sit in the gate. That was his two terms. You don't know how to stand in the gap and sit in the gate, you know. And I'm like, well, there's a lot of things I don't know, and I can't I can't learn them if you don't lead me, you know. So whatever you want to change in me, I give you permission. Yeah. I said, but don't ever ask me to do something that would cost you your friendship with me. You know, that that reminds me, Tim, I'm sure you connected it to when Jesus said, who are my father and mother and brothers? It, it makes yeah. it makes me think, even in that moment, when people are like, hey, your family's right here, that maybe he had that same, that same longing for friendship with creation, with humanity that he, that he revealed to you right there. It's what he had when he was in the garden. He was walking with God as a friend. He was, he, he made them almost his equal. He held nothing back from them, you know, and they could have gone so much deeper in that. It's what he longed for. It's why he made us. You know? I, I gave up my will that day. I said, Lord, I, I, you've always given me the right to choose things. And you've always asked me, if I want to do things that you've said, and I don't ever want to say no to you. So whatever, if there's anything in my heart that would say no to you, take it out now. Yeah. And uh, I want to know how to sit in the, the gate with you. And I want to know how to stand in the gap for whatever you're concerned about, you know, and, and even more than that, I said, it's not those two things that are more important. I want to be in you. Yeah. And I want you to be in me in the way that you designed us to be. Um, that that little prayer was life-changing for me. It sounds real simple to say, but it, it was volumes and volumes of um, what's happened since. Because from that moment forward, there was this acceleration of God going after my heart to teach me how to walk in his ways. And I repented and I repented and I repented almost every day. I probably could make a list of 50 things that I was repenting for and I was dealing with because God was saying, that's not my heart. That's not my heart. Or, or you know, and, and they weren't all sin. They were just, you're not going to respond to that, that uh, conversation or to that person or to that circumstance 
it's the right way because you don't have my heart yet. And so I found myself getting quieter and quieter. I wouldn't respond instantly to things. I wouldn't throw out my opinion on something. I wouldn't answer someone's question as quickly. I, I would go to Jesus first. Hmm. And I realized, well, I might know the answer or I might know a scripture or I might have an opinion on this. And before I was very opinionated, but now I'm like, okay, I've got an opinion, but I don't know if I've had his heart. Wow. And so I'm not qualified to speak yet until I've stood with him in the gap and said, what would you do Jesus? You know, uh, now that first change for me happened, um, with discernment, a gift of discernment it, that increased in me uh, exponentially. No, and because of the yielding? Um, yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I, I got filled with the Holy Spirit a few years prior to it, but you know, by the time I was 17, discernment had gone off the charts for me. And uh, and I, it was a little spooky because I was a member of a Baptist church, and I was part of a, you know, most of the circles that I ran in were pretty conservative, evangelistic but pretty conservative in their doctrine. So I was an anomaly in that. And uh, so one day I'm, I had a, a girlfriend that I liked a whole lot. Um, I wasn't sure if I, she was the right person for me, but I was praying about it. And uh, she was in my car. We were on our way to a Christian concert, which, you know, sounds normal now, but back then that was the first one that ever happened in our city. And I was part of organizing it. And so we, we were headed to this, concert with petra and uh <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I love that petra. Was, we, tim that was my first we, concert ever my mom took me to one <laughs> we brought me and me and uh seven of my friends we busted our piggy banks so we could get petra to Oklahoma City. and uh, anyway i uh, uh she had she had some vile thoughts that went through her head <laughs> and um it was just out of the blue. She she was this sweet, kind, normal, very holy young lady, and it was not characteristic of her. It was just out of the blue, and it was just some things that were inappropriate. And she didn't say anything. She didn't give voice to it. She was just sitting quietly on her side of my car. And all I did is I looked over and said, "I said, please don't don't think things like that." And um, she her eyes got about two inches bigger, and she she got really. Um, you know, shocked. She looked at me. She goes, "You know what I'm thinking?" And I said, "Not always, but right now I do." And I don't, <laughs> I don't want you to think like that. And I said, "Jesus doesn't like it either, but he sure likes you." And and she wanted out of the car immediately. So she's like, "Pull over! I want out of this car." So you describe that as discernment. Would you would you also characterize that as like a gifting of knowledge? Could be. We're talking. Yeah. It could be. It could be. It's been a word of knowledge that God gave me that for the moment. Um, so, but discerning the heart is not the same as hearing what's in somebody's head. So, in hearing the thoughts that she was thinking, I realized that her heart was not as pure and holy at that moment as God had enabled her to be. And, um, uh, you know, it would have been easy for me to just pray that out and not say a word, you know which I often do today in those circumstances. Uh, but in that moment, I blurted it out. I didn't, want to take her, I didn't want to take her to a Christian concert and our hearts not be right with God or not our thinking not be right. So, um, so I, I blew her up in my car and I didn't intend to do that. I don't think she would respond very well. And uh, anyway, she wanted out of the car. She, she literally made me pull over and, 
and she got out at uh, a friend's house that was a couple of blocks away from the concert and she ended up coming to the concert anyway but she came with one of her friends and uh, next day she broke up with me we never went out again uh she was mad at me for saying that she was mad at jesus for telling me what she was thinking and uh, she never and she never tried to hide that she had a wrong thought she was she was very repentive for that, but she was mad that God had said something to me about her. You know? And she was mad at Jesus for that. So I, I went to her and I was like, Jesus, did I, did I mess that up? Because I really like her. I don't want to break up with her. Uh, you know, and Lord said to me, first of all, that's not my perfect will for you. So it's not a bad thing that you're breaking up. You know? Secondly, uh, I don't want you to lose your friendship with her. She, she admires you and she admires your walk with, with me. And I always store that, but you can't have her back as a girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, I said, thirdly, you need to repent. I said, okay, Lord, well, I'm willing to repent. I shouldn't have moved her up. He said, no, I'm not asking you to repent for what you said. I'm asking you to repent for the same thing that she repented for. Yeah. Because you've thought things like that before and haven't repented for it. And he said, here's my principle. This is one of, the, one of the first fruits of knowing his ways. He said, I will never tell you something that's going on in someone else's life unless there's an element of it in you. Yeah. I'm never going to gossip or uncover someone else's sin unless I'm asking you to repent for the same thing. Yeah. He said, well, actually, that's not exactly correct. He said, he won't gossip at all. But he said, but if I point out to you someone else's sin, I'm asking you to repent first. So he will use the the, the gift of knowledge, discernment, um, different avenues of leading. This explains uh, to me so why he uses broken vessels. Yeah. He, he loves to yeah. use broken people because he wants us to be the first to repent. So he's, he's first dealing where you're seeing it in, it's like a mirror, you know? Right. I'm seeing it in you, but he's he's really saying, well, you need to look at yourself too. So I'm dealing yeah. with two people here, or exactly. it, it could even be as we talked about, uh, you and a community, you and a nation. Right. Once you be, once you can see it though, then he then he can have a conversation with you about it. You know, okay. if you can see it, and he starts talking about it. You really you, you can hear him clearly, but you can't identify with the response. But when you can see it. And you can see how it breaks his heart. You know, you can't look at him the same way anymore. You know, so uh, I realized that, wow, this has actually happened to me a lot. Where he's shown me something wrong in the city, or he's shown me something wrong in the church, or something wrong in another person, or something wrong in a business, and I've completely missed how I was supposed to respond to it because I'm trying to fix everyone else, and he's trying to fix me. And so suddenly I just said, okay, Jesus, I need to go back and deal with more than a hundred things that you've done with me. Well, you led me to pray a certain way. You showed me something that I didn't need to know. You included me in your, in your, you know, closed loop circle of saying, pray with me about this thing that's bothering me. And I didn't realize that it was in me too, you know? So I began to repent and repent and repent and repent and repent for things that were that God had already used me um, 
in really amazing ways, but I, uh, my perspective of him changed because I realized he was trying to get more of my heart before he wanted me to take up that cause. And so this is what happens when we become the experts of uh, issues or spiritual mapping. If I become an expert of an issue that God has a problem with, and I become the one that publishes it and says, here's an iniquity in the land and we've got to deal with it. And I have not first dealt with it in me. I have not stepped into the power and authority to change it. I've only stepped into the revelation of it. Right. And is that where you said um, when God kind of rebuked you, when you thought, wow, I must be over the target. I'm getting all this flack. And, and, and God revealed, no, it's because you've left an opening. Well, it's two things. It, it is that, but it's also that I had an opening. But even if I didn't have an opening, it still would be explaining why sometimes the righteous go through adversity. You know? So let's just take um, Jesus uh, as our example again. Um, why, why does he have 30 years of obscurity where we know almost nothing about what he did on the earth? You know? What was he going through? Um, well, look at the beginning. Uh, he's not even two years old, and a king wants to kill him. <laughs> to the right. level where God, God Himself has to intervene and send angels to rescue the family that's raising him. You know, so they go down to Egypt for two years. But when they first had an understanding of who they were as a as a husband and wife, and now a father and a mother to the Son of Man, where were they at? what was going on well look at joseph's conflict he wanted to put her away quietly you know when he finds out she's pregnant and it's not his he wants to put her away quietly when you read that in english it sounds like well he's nice he just wants to you know break the uh, again he's he's a covenant man so he doesn't want to break a covenant a betrothal was a covenant he doesn't want to break his covenant with her household without having a real clear understanding with God with what he's got to do. And yet those that term put her away quietly in English is very sounds very nice. But according to the law, he's required to stone her because he believes she's committed adultery. Yeah. So is his response righteous because he wants to be merciful and put her away quietly? Or is he really going to keep the law and be a righteous man? He's got a tough, tough decision to make. If he chooses what he understands righteousness to be, he's required by law to bring her before the elders of the city and expose her sin and judge it. And probably her household wanted to do that too. It's hard to understand that that's what Mary went through. But then here's the evidence of that. You know, an angel intervenes and says, don't be afraid to take her for that which she carries is from the most high. Now that's different. He's being, he's now being asked by God to break the law, to not do what everyone else in the city believes is righteous. And then when they go to Damascus to pay their taxes, we don't understand the level of despisement that they were living out, but they had to go back to the city of their birth, which means everyone in Damascus is a relative or almost everybody is a distant relative. You know? And yet 
even though they're going to a city that is made up of uncles and cousins and and aunties and and uh, uh, sisters and brothers and other members of their own household on both sides, they can't find any room in the city. So they lived with for 30 years a level of despisement that we can't even comprehend. Mary must have been ostracized by her own house. If he hadn't have taken her in, she would have been homeless or dead. You know, he protected her in her own city, but then he couldn't protect her from her own relatives. So she is subject to despisement on a scale we can't even comprehend. And yet he's born in that, and he's born with such a level of despisement, he ends up in a manger with the animals. And then kings show up. And so Joseph saw this dichotomy of Father God allowing his son to be born in obscurity and despisement and even probably utter hatred from people that thought they had sinned. And then wise men show up that have God's heart and they lavish him with gifts and declare him the king of kings. But that's done almost in secret. Yeah. It's, yeah, they went to Herod first, but when they show up and find the Son of Man, it, the whole city isn't tagging along with them. You know? So when we see that in Scripture, I realized Jesus lived out at least 30 years of despisement. He lived out at a level of obscurity that's hard to understand. He would have had constant attention from angels in the heavenly realms, and now he's got to figure out life as a normal human being. And so he said to me, when I prayed that out a little bit, Jesus said to me, you know the scripture that says, I only do what I see my father do, and I only say what I hear my father say. I said, Jesus, that's one of my favorite scriptures. You know that. I pray it every day. He says, I know. What you don't know is that I learned to do that by Joseph, my earthly father. and yet we know almost nothing about joseph what uh tim i was going to ask you um i think some of our listeners um especially believers don't have that kind of relationship don't understand how can how can someone hear from god um, in the way that you're describing? Is it is it something audible? Is it an inner knowing? When did it begin, or how did you cultivate it? Like, Can you describe a that a little bit? Yeah. Well, that's probably a, the kindergarten 101, but it's a question we ought to all get answered. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you God distinguish made... it from your own voice as well? Yeah. That's a very good question. Um, one, I think, I have I have an advantage over the average person because I come from a lineage of righteous people. Um, so uh, God's interaction with me in my childhood is not because I had an extraordinary heart. It's because I had blessings passed down to me. Yeah. I had a praying mother, a praying grandmother, a praying grandfather. I had aunties and uncles that, that knew Jesus and prayed. I had generations of all the way back as far as I can trace so far on my father's side. There's never been a generation without somebody serving God. And so uh, I had blessings that had been passed down to me like an inheritance. You know? Now, one of the best blessings in Scripture 
is Numbers chapter 6. It's the last few verses. It says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, that's one of the most profound blessings in Scripture. So I can say that before I was born, that blessing had been passed down in my house. So then when I'm born, I'm born with a lot of prophetic stuff. God's talking to my mother. He's talking to my father. He's, he's making known to them that, I have, that I'm, I'm marked for him in some way. Uh, that's an advantage that I have to admit over somebody that comes from a household that doesn't know God. However, that doesn't mean that I'm more special or more holy. It means I just had an advantage of blessing. So it, it caused God to initiate something with me that I might not have initiated myself until later. The average person doesn't always have that. Uh, but if you call out to him, he answers you. That's a promise in scripture. Yeah. So the first thing I tell people is uh, you've got to learn to hear God. And you've got to first understand that he's already speaking to, but, to you, but you're probably not hearing it. That you you have to to convince your own heart that he wants to know you, you know that you're you're it doesn't matter what your current condition is, you know that God wants to know you because you're part of his creation and he loves you so much that he was willing to die for you even if you were the only one that needed it, you know so most people think that they can't connect with God because they've got to fix something first. And the truth is, you just got to connect with him and let him fix it. Uh, the other thing is, how do you hear? So um, if you don't know him, then he uses a lot of things in nature and in creation and uh, in his word to speak. Uh, you may not hear a voice, you know, but but he'll draw near and he'll make it known to you if you're paying attention that he's nearby and he's listening to you. He's watching over you. Um, generally, the way he speaks to us as children, if we don't know him already, is dreams and visions. And yet we tend to despise those things in Western society and we take them out of the children. We, we tell them it's just imagination and it's just a dream. And it's not just a dream. God's initiating something with them. You know, He's trying to open up their spirit to understand the spiritual realm. You know. And so if we learn to pay attention to our dreams, it gets easier and easier to know that God is trying to communicate with me. Um, when I got saved, though, when the, even, even understanding what that is, I simply asked God to be a part of my life, to take over, to be my king, and to, to forgive me of anything that I had done that fell short of him. Prior to that, um, the birds would sing. His voice would would come to me outside of myself. Uh, my first encounter was sitting on a swing set. Jesus was speaking to me as if he was sitting in the swing in this the swing next to me, and I could hear him as if a person was standing there. You know, he just enabled me to do that. But that's not normal. That's not ordinary. You know, again, I think he did that because I had an abundance of a foundation of blessing in my life. So he initiated that moment with me. But what was in me, you know, was there something in me that, that, that he showed up because of, you know, I would say yes. 
because what my thoughts were before he showed up is I was wondering who made that tree. I was wondering why I was alive. I was enjoying creation. I was laughing in the field with the joy of a child, you know, living in a safe place with, with a wonderful mother and father, with a wonderful brother, you know. And so I was, my heart was speaking, even though I wasn't giving words to it. My heart was screaming out to God, I want to know you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know? And so he just showed up and, and answered my heart questions. You know? um, now, secondly, uh, it, this is comical, but my my brother got saved at a James Robinson crusade, and he was two years older than I was. So when when he was six, he got saved and baptized. <clears throat> he came home from that meeting, and he told me that I was a sinner and that I needed to get saved. You know? And I was four years old, and I'm like, well, gee, I'm talking to Jesus every day, and he's talking to me, and I'm not a bad boy. Like, what, what do I need to get saved from? You know, <laughs> and he said, "Well, you still have things in your heart that God doesn't like, and He wants you to go to heaven. So you need you need to get saved." And I said, "What is what am I? What does that mean? You know, I'm already talking to God, and and sometimes He talks to me." And my brother said a very profound thing. He was this is the theologian question coming out of a six year old. You know? He said to me. Um, you, you can't go to heaven unless he lives inside you. No. So you, you can hear him, but you need to invite him in and let him have your spirit, soul, and body. And i like, I don't even know what that means, but you mean he wants to live inside me? And he said, yes. No. I said, how can God live inside me? He's too big. No. And my brother gave me a profound answer. He said, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. No. <laughs> So I went to Jesus and I said, is this true? Do you actually want to live inside me? Why haven't you told me that if you wanted to do that? You know? And uh, I heard a very innocent, just a simple, loving, kind, yes, I want to live inside you. Uh, I want you to invite me in, though. And um, so I did. And when I invited Jesus to come into my heart, um, suddenly I was very aware of things that I had done that had grieved him that I had not known were wrong before. And I, I, my conscience just came alive, you know. I was pretty innocent up to that point. I had not done a lot of things wrong, but I still, I still was guilty of a few things that I had not repented for. And yet what changed for me is from that point forward, I could hear him from within. Like his voice moved inside me, you know. And it's not in my head. It's, it's in my heart, you know. So it, it's very soft and it's very quiet. And you have to get sometimes still and at rest to hear it. But when you do, you know it's him. You know? Um, that became a life journey for me of just learning that. And now I want to add one more thing. He doesn't always speak with words. So lots of people are actually hearing God and they don't think they're hearing God because they're waiting for words. And sometimes when we ask a question, he answers us with his heart. He just conveys to us his heart. And it's the equivalent of saying, can I go or should I stop? And the light turns green, but he doesn't say go. The light just turns green. Yeah. So I, it took me a while to learn to let him lead me that way. 
but for, for me what that feels like is when i'm at peace it's uh, it's almost always a yes when i don't have peace i i ask a different question until i get a response you know and i don't i don't leave god along i talk to him continuously night and day as much as possible yeah wow that's that's excellent thank you for that tim um switching gears slightly could you give another Hold up, Pete, yeah. if you don't mind yeah well, go ahead can jump I in. ask a quick question yeah so I think it's amazing and what a blessing to have the foundation that you had. Um, so if you don't have that foundation, so you're starting, you're starting a little differently. Um, my wife is an example, you know, her generational line is in a lot of witchcraft and a lot of paganism. And, and she was the, um, thou cast because she had, I think she had one grandmother or aunt that actually converted and came to Christ because she has a memory of her uh, praying over her and marking her and, and, and pouring into her. So I almost feel like what happened to her, even though she had at her foundation, a lot of evilness, she had had a heart conversion. She became born again at a young age. And then her aunts that were all evil, saw the jesus in her and right. was like you're different you're not one of us so right. she she had to to grow and she's still growing we're all growing but i guess my question would be and maybe you already answered it it's it if you don't have that foundation how do you what are the steps you can take to to get more intimate like that. I think, I think you kind of touched on it. Maybe it's the prayers you pray, the yielding that you do to the Lord. Lord, I want to be your friend. I want, I want this intimacy that you want with, with me, you know? So is it the, is it, is it as simple as that? Just yielding and yielding to the yeses, yielding to the, the prompting every day and just spending time with them. I think it's supposed to be that simple. I think we complicated a lot. Um, and also because we're sometimes impatient, we want him to answer us quickly. And he he always hears us. He doesn't always answer us immediately. He likes to set up a moment where he responds the way he, uh, within his ways. So God doesn't always answer us on our terms, but he always answers us. So um, the the seeking him becomes a journey. And I have to understand that I might ask a question and he may not answer it. Doesn't mean he doesn't want to talk to me. You know, doesn't mean he doesn't have the answer. His way of loving to respond to questions is to set up uh, a life experience for you where you get the full answer. You don't just get words. You know? So if I ask a certain question, he'll answer me with an experience and he'll wait to give me the verbal answer until I'm in the middle of the experience wondering why this is happening to me. And then he'll answer my question. And, I'm, and I find I'm living it out, not just hearing it out. You know? That's his favorite way to deal with those. Now, that said, you're bringing up a really good point. And it's, it's become my personal opinion that anyone that is raised in the occult or is drawn to it in some way, I want to say something very, very boldly here. And I think I can back it up with you know, 60 years of journey. If you come from a family of the occult, it's because your household was marked for glory somewhere way, way, way back there. You know? And someone righteous made a wrong decision 
or got upset with God for some reason and rebelled against the living God and has corrupted the household from now on. However, the anointing is still there. The gift from God that has marked your house for glory is still there. He does not remove it. It, it is evidential, even though they may be seeking things the wrong way or, or trying to get power or trying to understand the spiritual realm for all the wrong ways and all the wrong reasons, it's evident that God wants to know you. And so you, you are going to be the first fruits of his glory in the earth when he begins to fill the earth with his own presence. You're going to humble yourself. You're going to bow your knee one day and your household will be saved because he chose to save it generations back. So you're never going to do something so bad or so horrible that you're no longer going to be able to be redeemed. And most people that get heavily into the cult, they believe that they've made a deal with the demonic realm on such level that God won't take them back. And that is absolutely without, without irrevocable. It's wrong. It's not, it's not the heart of the living God towards you. So the fact that you have that in your history says even more evidentially that God has made a covenant with your house somewhere back there. Just call out to him and come back into covenant. Now, the other thing is um, it's not always easy because once you've got those kinds of things in your lineage, then there's a lot of cleanup to do. And so the demonic realms don't give up their hold overnight. They have to be dealt with with his power. And he will show up to deal with them with his power. So call on that. Ask for that. He'll, he'll rescue you. The other thing, though, is that let's just say there's an innocent person and they don't have either one of those. You know, How do they discover God? Well, the, according to the word, we're supposed to be able to do that even if no one ever tells us. We're still accountable for just look at creation. You know, but I think we've left out this major thing. I want to I want to throw this out, and it is the way to help somebody from any background back into glory. We're supposed to learn how to bless the children. You know, that is a primary responsibility of ministry. You know, and we intend we instead in the Western world we default to teaching instead of blessing. You know. So may I interject? So the pattern would be in the scripture, obviously, of of the the fathers you look at abraham isaac jacob there was the impartation of a spiritual thing and also the natural they were verbalizing it you know with their flesh it and it it affected the generations and then you spoke on what your what happened to yourself you had family members that were doing the same thing with their prayers with their with their blessings and it and it there was this multiplication that took place as a ripple effect of positive energy almost, you know? So you're saying that as parents, I've got two boys, Peter has a daughter. We need to learn the pattern of the scriptures to pray and even to bless into um, our children. Well, number, right? number six says, um, and God said to Moses, go tell uh, Aaron, and the priests to bless all the children of Israel with this blessing. And the last verse of that book says, 
when you bless the children with this blessing, I will put my name on them and I will surely bless them. Well, what, what does that give to you? That's the greatest gift I could give to a child would be, let me just pour on you, lavish on you something so profound that you're guaranteed to have a face-to-face -face with God sometime in your life. You know, you're marked for glory because he's already written his name on your head. You know, there's nothing we, I think we have deprived generations of this, you know, and this is where, uh, you know, I wasn't, I don't have the journey that I do, I think, because I'm so holy. I have the journey because someone in my background did not deprive the next generation of blessing. Now, that said, if nobody in your household ever knew how to bless, you can be the first one. Yeah. Right. Even, even the patriarchs, they did not know how to give blessings when they started. They came into covenant with God, and they learned how God blessed so they didn't withhold it from others. Yeah. And they were even told occasionally, don't, don't forget this for anybody, even bless your enemies. Yeah. Well, that's pretty profound to say, while you have an enemy, go bless them. Yeah. Because then you're going to get a different response eventually. Now, the other thing was uh, names. It is the privilege of every mother and father to name their child. Yeah. And God has got this mysterious work in the earth where very often even parents that don't know him and aren't seeking him will come up with a name that will be very descriptive of the character of their child. Yeah. It's profound and it's happened all through history because God one of the aspects of covenant is a name. God reveals a name whenever he reveals covenant. So he likes to come to you and call you by name. Before the foundations of the world, I knew you. But what was your name? If he knew you, then he named you. So it's almost like the parent's opportunity, even with the child in the mother's womb, it's their, one of their first opportunities to bless that child. I'm blessing that child by, and if they're God-fearing uh, parents, they're, they're seeking the Lord, what do you want us to name this child? And, that's, and when they finally get, they settle on a name and they give that name, that's like the first blessing that you've given that child. You're, actually, you're actually pronouncing a blessing because now every time that name is spoken, it's a prophetic word about who you are. Right. And what wow. you could grow up into. And it may not even be right. If it's wrong, <laughs> this is funny. God shows up at some point because you've been named. He shows up at some point and changes your name to make sure that you don't miss what he created you for. Wow. So now, now one, one more thing about this. Let's take a mother and father don't know God, and they're just off the chart sinners. They're just living hellacious lives. And they decide, you know, they're not even married, but they decide they're going to have sex, and then they end up with a child. God has just allowed you to enter into the power of the Spirit of God. He allowed you to, to create a life, you know. And that is an impartation of the nature of what's holy and divine in the universe. And you don't know him. You don't know him. 
and yet you tapped into the spiritual realm. You tapped into the heart of God. You brought forth something out of heaven that only God can do. If parents understood their children that way, they would raise them differently. They would perceive them differently. They would never abort one because they would realize you just created the most holy thing you could possibly do with your life. You know? wow. Now, what do we, what are we going to do with it? You know, it's coming into the world. Who is it? What's it going to be? Um, that's even the, the thoughts and intents of a woman's heart, knowing she's carrying a child for a while. And, and all those nine months of carrying the child, she's thinking about, what is this child going to be? Will it be a girl? Will it be a boy? Is it going to be the, like me? Is it going to be like my mother? Is it going to be like my best friend? Uh, is it going to look like my father, the father? You know, she's, uh, those kinds of thoughts are actually creating. You, know, you think that they're just ponderings and I'm wondering and I'm questioning, but in reality, I'm learning how to engage with creation and create because that's how we were made before the foundations of the world, God sat around his throne and thought, I'd like to make a friend. How would I design it? What would I do? Well, I'd like it to look like me. Well, I can't just make it look like me and be a robot. And, and you know, I'm going to need to give it my own heart and I'm going to need to, to allow it to have the freedom to, to, to choose me or not. It can't really be my friend if it doesn't want to be my friend. So he did the same thing before he created us. That said, I think that, Parents have the capacity to understand the wisdom of God beyond anything that happens in our childhood because we actually engaged in some way in something holy when we created a child. Now, that said, if I didn't know him, if I'm not seeking him, and that child's born illegitimate and there's some level of sin involved in that, it is still phenomenal how many times in history God has brought forth a child out of that kind of womb and then introduced himself to him or her you know, and made himself known to him. And they become the redeemer for the country or they become the, the, the prophet for the nation. Um, God, God just loves to choose something out of adversity and then bring it into glory. And uh, so there's hope for all of us in that. You know, you know um, one of the things that uh, that I think as Christians we we tend to dogmatically kind of say, and and because you've touched on this with your spiritual warfare, is about you know Christians being demonized. And I know you said, well, let's let's deal with the demon first, and then we can figure out how the theology works. But I just th- I think for the benefit of our our listeners, could you? explain your perspective on on deliverance and is it something every believer should go through because maybe we need to we need to figure out so and i bring this up because as we're talking about you know walking in the ways of god and yielding to him i feel like you know and luke and i have talked about this satan's going to try to keep us from becoming believers before we are but once we are he wants to keep us you know, locked down where we, we miss our full potential. He wants to keep us in bondage. And so I think a lot of us believers are walking around, you know, crippled. Right. I agree. I think identity is one of the greatest stumbling blocks in the body of Christ because too many people get saved for a selfish reason. They just don't want to go to hell or they, they want God's help. Uh, they, they, 
they don't get saved out of identity. They don't, they don't get saved to saying that God really wants to know me. And, and I'm convinced he really wants to know me. Most people get saved because they want to know God. And, and they, it takes them a while to realize that God wants to know them more than they want to know him. Now, that said, I think that I think that we've deprived the body of Christ of this is because we built our churches through membership instead of through family identity, you know. And so we invite people to come into a teaching center instead of inviting them to come in sometimes to a family. And if you're in a family, you know where you fit in the family. You know what your name is. You know who your brothers and your sisters are. You know who your aunts and uncles are. You know, if you're just a member, you can sit in a pew your entire life, listen to profound, amazing teaching, and still not know the other people that are part of the organization. You know? That's not the kind of house that God is building. You know? So God wants every single one of us to know why we were created, what he created us for, who we are, how he's going to help us do it, and how to have an engagement with him, not just on the earth, but in the heavens also, because he's not shutting the heavens to us either. So, But in our design, if I just look at myself and say, how am I designed? I don't know God, but let me look at what he made and figure out something. I'm a spirit, soul, and body. And that is very difficult for the average person to comprehend because we only understand ourselves usually by a soul and a body. And yet we were born and created to have spiritual experiences. You know? mm -hmm. We are not a human being trying to have a spiritual experience. We were created spiritual beings and we're having a temporary human experience. You know? Now that said, the spark of life that happens when you're created in the womb. This has actually been filmed now where the, the, the sperm goes into the egg and it fertilizes it and, and something happens. It becomes a human being. At that point, there's an explosion of life. That's not because you just got made. It's because what was created before the foundations of the world just, just burst into the human being's realm. You know? So a life that was in the heavens has just come into the womb. You know? We think that's the beginning of life, but in reality, that's the re-emerging of something holy coming back to the earth. You know? It's going to come out of the womb just like Jesus did. Now, when it comes out of the womb, it's, it's the responsibility of moms and dads and elders in the community to make sure it's named correctly make sure that that child knows what God sent it to the earth to be. You know? And if we don't do that, we're depriving people of their identity. You know? No wonder we have such an identity crisis with gender and all kinds of things right now, because that's not the primary problem. The primary problem is while they were a baby, we didn't tell them who they were. You know? mm -hmm. So now they're trying to figure it out on their own, and it's not easy. You know? And if you try to figure that out without God and without some sense that he loves you and cares for you, then it's even harder. You know? Now, that said, I think that if we would take a person that just got saved and put them in the middle of the room, surround them with a bunch of people that already know God and a bunch of people that know how to pray and know how to hear him, you know, and just say, Jesus, King of Kings, we want to celebrate this wonderful gift that you've just sent to the earth. Yeah. 
We're going to glory in your design. We're going to sing and leap and jump and shout and dance at this beautiful, wonderful, incredible gift that you just sent to the earth. Let us impart to this spirit, this little human spirit, the joy that you have brought forth. You know, And as we celebrate this new gift from heaven, tell us what you're going to do. Tell us what this child's name is. Tell us what you created them for. So that when they are young, we can train them in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. Yeah. Now, if we did that, we would constantly be able to reinforce in a child, well, I know you're struggling today, but this is who you are. Or I know you just you know, had a horrible mess up today or your best friend did this or that or something happened that shouldn't have happened. However, this is who God says you are. You know, this is what you were created for. So they would begin to understand why they go through certain things, why some things happen to them, because it's part of them learning their design. And at some point, even hopefully while they're still very young, they learn to overcome the things that are going on around them because they step into the power of who God created them to be. And they start learning how to work with God to do things that are amazing. You know, Now, to the demon question, um, let me first of all say this. Christians can have anything they want. If you want a demon, you can have one. I don't recommend it. You know? <clears throat> if you don't want a demon, you're probably still going to have one because we don't live perfect lives. And they are sometimes attracted to iniquity. But most of the time when when I get demonized, if if I get demonized, not because I voluntarily asked a demon to come in, it's because I opened up my life to something that God didn't want me to. And so I, what we call in deliverance ministry, I opened a door and something came in. You know, well, if I, if I would learn to deal with my heart correctly, I wouldn't be opening doors to things that I don't understand. Yeah. But because we we aren't always raised that way, then it's most likely that almost every single child at some point is going to open a door that they shouldn't have opened, you know, and then become subject to something they may not understand, you know, and that's why we sometimes need help. But Jesus said, "You will cast out demons." It was one of those things. He didn't tell us you you might run into a demon while you're out there ministering. He said, "No, you will cast out demons. You will heal the sick." You will set the captives free. That is a level of resonance coming out of his voice that says he already knows there's a big problem that needs some solutions. So I'm equipped by the power of God and by knowing him to deal with those things. Even if I've never seen it before, I've never dealt with it before, he's got an answer for it at the moment because he wants to fix it. I personally don't believe that the demonic realm can defile your spirit to the level that um, that you can. But I, so I think most of the times when we're dealing with demonic stuff, we're dealing with a person's soul and we're dealing with a person's body. Yeah. That somewhere in your body, you might have a spirit of iniquity. Uh, somewhere in your soul, you might have demonic spirits that can be all kinds of different names. And they often, in the same way we should name a child correctly, they take on a name that is descriptive of what they do. And it's designed to skew your identity 
into something you're not to make you and others believe that this is the way you are when it's actually something else. Mm-hmm. So getting free from one, sometimes when it leaves, you feel very empty and like a, somebody just turned the lights on to an empty room. You wonder what's supposed to be there because there may be a whole a whole section of your personality that didn't develop the way God created it. You took on an identity that wasn't what you were born to be. Yeah. And so usually they relate to the opposites of the fruits of the spirit. So if I'm supposed to have love, what would the opposite of love be? Probably hatred. So a spirit of hate is descriptive of a lack of love. If I want to get free from it, somebody can help me and say, go in the name of Jesus and hate will leave. But now I've got an empty room. Instead of opening the door up to hating somebody, I need to open the door up to the heavenly realms, let the king of kings walk in and bring his love to me. Where I take on the identity of my maker and I begin to be like him, that shuts the door to the demonic realm. This is why Jesus was able to say to all of his friends, "You, you guys need to pray because the tempter is coming, but he has nothing in me. What does it mean? He has nothing in me. It means I've given him no place to rest. I've given, I've not opened any doors in my, in my soul. He has, if he, if he comes close to me, he sees the attributes and the fruits of the spirit. He has nowhere to get in, you know. And if he tries to get in anyway through a, through a a busted window, you know, I have a defense in my spirit against it because where the light of God is, darkness cannot dwell. You know? So if I've opened the door, it's actually two, two problems. One, I did something I shouldn't have done. And two, I probably got a dark space in my heart that I haven't felt that I haven't yet filled with one of the fruits of the spirit. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, wow, Tim. Thank you so much uh, uh, for all of this. Um, it, it, I, I think this is going to be exceptionally edifying to to everyone that listens. And there's there's a few more things I wanted to get to, and we might have to save it for another time if you're willing. Uh, I wanted to ask a little more examples of uh, of gatekeeping, maybe because you had that story about the uh, the murders in your city. I thought that was pretty profound uh so maybe yeah, i think we ought to do that with another yeah another thing because i think that topic is very expedient for how we transform our cities yes and i'd like to just deal with that that'd be good that that would be great and, and um then, and, uh, real quick luke and then the other thing maybe for another time is as you're seeing the the banks uh going through similar things from 08, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, but again, we can save that uh, for another time. Maybe maybe God is showing you some things there. I can tell you right now, don't be afraid. Yep, <laughs> we're in, we're in a bit of a blip. It's not the, Mac, the the actual crash, but we're in the prophetic echo of the crash that's coming. So don't be afraid. Just listen to God right now. And and I like what you said earlier. As long as we're yielding to him and we're in his will, we could be in the midst of all the rubble. So speaking the banking stuff or what's coming, as long as we're in his will, he's going to protect his bride. It's going to protect his body and and we're going to be all right. 
Yeah, I call that the Jeremiah principle, that the safest place to be is in the rubble or in the well. But adversity might throw you there, but it'll save your life when the city comes down. You know, And then you emerge with the word of the Lord on how to rebuild it better. Oh, very good. Oh, thank you again so much, Tim, for your time. We really appreciate it. We're uh, we're honored to have you. And yeah, if um, if your schedule allows, the next month or so, we could um, maybe get back together and talk more on gatekeeping and, and things like that. I just when I when I first heard that, I I called up Luke right away. I'm like, this is incredible. You know what a principle of authority that God has given us to be able to affect uh, our community around of uh, around us. And then what a responsibility we have to get our own heart right. And so, you know, what's the most yeah. amazing thing about that I've learned from gatekeeping, too, is that a very small remnant in a city can fix the whole city. Wow. It, it doesn't take as many of us as we think, you know, and, but it does take obedience and it does take, you know, some not not one person can always do it. God, God likes to have a remnant. Right. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much, Tim, and uh, uh, God bless you on your weekend. And uh, I hope your hope your mom is is doing well. I'm praying for her, um, as you mentioned. And um, I don't know. If you, you guys got some level of power and anointing on your side because she's been very quiet all morning. That's that's not. Oh wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> I was right right before you came on. I was about to tell Pete when I was trying to track you down, and I found your Facebook page. And you were you were about to go Facebook Live, and it just oh it tickled my heart so much I I I, I busted out laughing. That's so why I left it. That's why I left it in there. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm saying. So you're getting on there, you're waiting for for people to pop up, and <laughs> you turn because your mom was responding to you. I was so cute. I said, Are you talking to me? <laughs> Oh, it was it was it was a blessing. That's my that's my normal every day. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, Tim, I also want to echo Peter. This was such a blessing. We can your your wisdom and your uh, your relationship with with the Lord radiates through your your personality and your conversation. And I know I'm going to be re-listening to this because there's such such nuggets in it. We have to do this again. And if you don't mind, give us the honor of, of closing us out in some prayer, um, and uh, we'll leave it at that. Till next okay. time. Father, I thank you for these two, and I thank you for all of their listeners. And we just turn this over to you now. We ask you to take it where you want it to go. Give you permission to take the words that we speak and the things that came out of our heart. We ask you to put them in your book of remembrance in the heavenly realms to let them have an eternal recording because we spoke of you. And now I pray that you would cause it to fall upon the ears of those that are looking for you. And and would you now send your spirit ahead of us and go out and find people that you want to know. We ask you to reap a harvest out of our efforts. We give you that harvest because you're deserving as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I pray that you would now mark our lives and order our steps and plan our way. And even if we plan some things, we pray that you would order our steps into your perfect will and give us a gift of wisdom 
and counsel and might and understanding in you. I pray for the body of Christ to know your ways and to know you and that we would have a move of God in our land that would bring great glory and honor to you. I pray that we would witness the knees bowing and the tongues confessing that you are their king. And I pray that in this day and in this hour when there's much going on, we submit to you. We ask you for your counsel. We ask you for your help. In times of trouble, we say you are our refuge and our ever-present help in times of trouble. So I hold my nation up to you and the native nations up to you. And I ask you to become king over them. And that in doing so, remember us and our households that we might be found always with you and that we might be numbered with the righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your righteousness and your great sacrifice for us. And in the last, the last days of my life, up to this point, I've always known you as my Savior. Now I pray that the body of Christ in America would know you as their King and not just their Savior. Would you open our eyes and open our ears and give us a heart to understand that we might know the times and seasons and, and discern how you are working mightily in our midst and on our behalf. So we call for the hand of God to come into the earth. We call for the finger of God to point against his enemies. And we pray that you would now deal with all the things that are adversely affecting your kingdom. And for your own name's sake, we ask for your power to break out in America and not be contained in your house or in our nation, but to go to the ends of the earth and fill it with your glory. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. It's such like an honor meeting you, you and we, we got to do this again. This was such a blessing. All right. Look forward to talking to you again. All right. Thank you, Tim. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Days of Noah podcast. We appreciate each and every listener out there. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform and also to share it with family and friends. If you have any questions or comments for the show, feel free to email us at thedaysofnoahpodcast at gmail.com. God bless and see you next week.